Hello, and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Camuso-Miller. I'm a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., and I interview members of the media about their background, about how they got into journalism, and lots of other topics. The Friday Reporter is a PR Daily podcast. Check out PR Daily for ideas, inspiration, and trends on all things public affairs and to find the Friday Reporter podcast. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today, I am joined by Mary C. Curtis, who is uh, just I'm just so thrilled that Mary was available to join me today. Not only is Mary a remarkable journalist here inside of Washington, D.C., who is doing columnist work at CQ Roll Call, she is also uh, the host of a podcast, and she does just, I mean... Mary, it would be impossible for me to list all the things. Equal to, equal Time is the name of the podcast that she does, and she's a host. She's a contributor for NPR. She's a, a senior facilitator. Anyway, Mary, I'm just thrilled to have you today. Thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to visit. For asking me, I'm thrilled as well. This will be a nice time to kind of chill and have a conversation since I will be back on the radio tomorrow night on cable TV last night. And this week I had a podcast and a column drop. But, uh, you know, and I also thought I taught a workshop uh, for the Authentic Leadership Workshop how to uh, write to change the world. And so, yeah, my life is busy, but I kind of like it that way. Yeah, and especially now with so many um, so many opportunities that have really sort of closed off because of the pandemic, you have really, more than ever, it feels as if you are just finding ways to continue to stay busy. Before we get into all of that, though, Mary, I want you to tell me and, and the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got into this line of work. Well, I like to say it started when I was a child, believe it or not, where I was a journalist or a professional observer before I knew what that even was or that it was called journalist. Uh, I grew up in West Baltimore uh, in a family of five kids, two parents, and a boarder Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a row house uh, in West Baltimore. And my three elder siblings were involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, They belonged to a civic organization, and they used to demonstrate and do sit-ins. And actually, one of my brothers, uh, Tony, was arrested twice in sit-ins. And they used to meet in our home, an integrated group of young people and planning strategy and making signs. And I found that fascinating. So at a very young age, I was aware of the news. I was aware of what was going on. And, you know, I like to say almost all of my family was involved in the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. My oldest brother, who was a law student, I believe at the time, helped with logistics, and my next brother helped as well. And my oldest sister was at the booth helping people make signs who would come from out of town. No kidding. And my mother went with her church. Oh, wow. uh, To church. Uh, Yeah. And so my dad was working. He came back home. And my next sister up for me was young, and she had to stay home and take care of me, of course, but we watched it. And so I knew what was going on. So as I like to say, I did observe. I was the kid under the dining room table listening and taking it all in Mm -hmm. and realizing that at some point, people in my family were changing history. They were shaping it and changing the world. And for me, I was, became very comfortable in the, the, the observer, being on the outside looking mm-hmm. in. And I was involved in my high school paper. Uh, in college, I was involved. I had internships at different papers, uh, Newsday when I was in college and others. 
and at the Associated Press, which hired me when I got out of uh, out of college. And so that really is how I became that person who was just wanted to consume what was going on. I was also a reader. Uh, my my mom took me from my library card when I was three years old. I and love that. At the um, uh, branch, uh, which my branch was the one that was across the street from the Freddie Gray when that happened in Baltimore. Oh, you're kidding. It was a library community center that stayed intact and open the whole time, which gave me a different perspective. And I also became to appreciate that. I came to appreciate that, whether it was when I was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard or I was at the New York Times going into front page meetings, that I brought a different perspective that was valued mm-hmm. because I had gone through all the professional steps that all of my colleagues had but also I had a life experience that helped me not only with sources but and story ideas, but it gave me a bit of a different perspective. And, and I just, you know, I was hooked. And, yeah. and the people that I wrote about and went to, were they were always so grateful because a lot of people had not come to them for their perspectives right. before, you know. And so when people talk about a voice for the voiceless, I said, no, 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 everybody has a voice. It's just that sometimes people don't listen. Well, that's a really good point that you make. What I love that comes through in the work that you do too, Mary, is that you are, because maybe it is from that early exposure you had to history, that really shines through in the, in the work that you do and in all of your coverage. It strikes me that you are always very careful to try to pull in, uh, you know, sort of the historical context of, of what it is you're covering and how it is it's come to be, you know, what it is today. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, equal time and the columnist work that you do. It is tremendous and it is super thoughtful. And, and I'm just, I, I've had such a good time catching up before doing my homework, if you will, for the podcast on a lot of that coverage. Tell me about how it is, um, how do you feel like it's being received by your audience and by the folks that are uh, consuming the work that you do? Well, I think a lot of people, I get a lot of good response, uh, not just from readers and listeners that email me, but also from people that I run into. My office is in Washington, but my home base is Charlotte, North Carolina. And you'll be like in a cycle class, and the instructor, who's a middle-aged white guy, will say, and by the way, you know, we have a you know, podcast royalty here in the house. And oh, I cool. learned so much every time I listen to her. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. I didn't really pay you to say that. But, <laughs> and, uh, but I also have to be honest because I am an African-American woman, and that's when my my picture's on right on my uh, column and on my podcast. And I'm writing and covering the intersection of politics, culture, and race in the mm-hmm. column. And also the the podcast, of course, looks at policy and politics through, through a lens of social justice, mm-hmm. and my guests reflect that. But also some of the response I get is from people who, honestly, sometimes it's exhausting. Um, you can disagree respect, respectfully. Mm-hmm. You really can disagree respectfully, but, and I don't mind engaging, even if you're a bit angry, but when you deny my humanity, when you're name-calling, when you, it, it's very obvious you hate people, me or people like me, and you don't know them. Yes. You don't know me. Mm-hmm. And there's just a certain amount of resentment, and there is some hate. And, and I get a bit of that as well. I, I get some of that as well. And it's, it's a bit exhausting. It doesn't affect me, my family life. My, I have great support systems, and right. I do take time for self-care. But I do wonder when people do that, if you would only read something, if you would only spend time working on yourself, the energy you're putting into 
closing yourself off and hating other people just for being the person these folks are yeah. is right. is destructive and it's not going to get us anywhere as a society but it's also not going to get you anywhere no no and and it i can't remember where i saw it but it, it's one of those things that um i mean our kids are watching right they're paying oh, attention and i wrote a column that's yeah, where that's I wrote a column at the end of the year that's what i thought i had read I it even the Stephen Sondheim, That's right. uh, uh, you know, lyrics from Into the Woods, because I do weave culture. And I'm a culture vulture. I'm a theater <laughs> junkie. And I do weave culture into what I do because I think that's a way that I can relate to people because we all take our cues sometimes from culture. So you might have me throw in an old movie, you know, gaslighting, uh, you know, to, how they're pulling the wool over our eyes. And I think, you right. like that old movie, but think of Bergman and Charles Boyer. Or I might throw in Adam Sandler's film in there, you know, 51st dates, you know, we're, we're not, we're, the way Americans feel about history is, is the way uh, Drew Barrymore woke up and didn't know anything every day. She didn't remember a thing. We don't remember. And I do that. And, and I love culture myself. I'm actually going to the ballet and go to, I go to the theater and all of that. And it's relaxation, but it's also uh, a different perspective. You can't mm-hmm. stay all dug into you could get lost in the political news, but my goodness, that wouldn't be a good thing either. No, would it? no, I mean, um, we all, and I yeah. also, and I'm very curious. So I like to people say, well, how do you get the guess? And I said, you know, there's so many things that I'm curious about. And I realize if I want to know something, maybe my audience does too. Yes. Maybe they want to know about histor- uh, environmental racism. Right. Maybe they want to make a connection between how if we have a better educational and pre-K system, it'll help people not choose a criminal path. And maybe they want to hear what the Reverend William Barber has to say or or what the minor- majority uh, Whit Clyburn wants to, wants to say about voting rights. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's really just been, um, it's been a great venue for that, for to illuminate issues. And we've had some just wonderful guests, some folks I've covered, some folks I know through the Op-Ed Project, and just some people. We have had folks from the White House often. We we had the senior advisor, Cedric Richmond, on after the uh, vote on the b- voting bill. I had listened and to that. So mm-hmm. it's really gratifying to me that folks have reacted to it, listeners and then also newsmakers who want to come on and make their case. And uh, I've loved that. And as far as the columns, you know, because I always get really nervous every week. I tell my husband, oh, I have nothing to write about. I don't know. <laughs> he said, oh, you'll come up with something. I can't imagine. But if something I- hits, <laughs> Oh, it's hard. I know. It's like we're sweat and blood, I tell you, every word. Don't say it's easy. But when something hits me, when I just can't get it out of my mind, when it strikes a nerve, and I, I just have to interrogate that. You know, the column, the most recent one, I, this will probably be running after that, but on looking at the fight and the rhetoric after uh, President Biden has said he would put a black woman on the Supreme Court and right. how people are attacking the notion before the woman was even picked. I, and yeah. looking at the resumes, the stellar resumes, and as a black woman, I relate to that. And to people denigrating you and your uh, talents, education, and background before they know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And the people making the charge are people who didn't say anything when Reagan said he would put a woman on, and or, or President Trump said he would put a woman on and did. But it's the black, because so often in our society, what we mean is white. The qualification for being on the court was a white male for hundreds, hundreds of, of years, you know, for over a hundred right. years. Right. Yet 
the white is always silent. That's the default, the norm. That's right. And I just bristle against that because to me, black Americans are so in the soil and they are so patriotic. They fought in every war for a country that didn't love them back because they are pushing this country to live up, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, to the words in the founding documents. And they've made America, America every step of the way. And I think that's thrilling. Yes. And yeah, I do. I really do. When people say, oh, if you, I, I quote Baldwin a lot, you know, well, if you don't like it here, and he's, you know, if I, the reason, I love it. What, I just love this country, which is why I criticize it. Because right. <laughs> right. I want it to be You want best. it to be better. Yeah. I, I want it to be the best. And, you know, that is where the column comes from. And the podcast, too. And just my curiosity. I'm always learning things. And uh, I love at the Op-Ed Project that I am exposed. I've done workshops for health equity leaders at tell me, Harvard and tell me a little. Tell me a little and, bit and, about and, that. And global yeah. thought leaders in, in South Africa, South Africa twice, to work with global uh, leaders who are working in issues of HIV-AIDS research and environmental research and, and human rights, mm-hmm. uh, work with LGBTQ activists in countries in Africa where it's against the law to be gay. So they're putting their lives on the line. And you're teaching so them. Learning. Are you teaching them how yes, to write? I, awesome. Well, it's more than that. Um, the Op-Ed Project, Right to Change the World, the mission is to over-represent the underrepresented and to oh. get all voices out there. We have a couple of slogans, you know, the story becomes the world we live in. Mm-hmm. You know, and also, if you say things of consequence, there may be consequences, but the alternative is to be inconsequential. Uh-huh. And it's just to give people that push. So when I teach the workshops, a part of it is about the, you know, what's in an op-ed right. and what's in uh, it, a part of a, a, an argument that changes minds. But part of it is owning your expertise and to ask really core questions of yourself mm-hmm. and then to bring that out. And that is a joy of mine that some of the folks I've worked with at universities across the country and the world, and at and, and it's for the public too, so anybody can come. Sometimes people come. You know, I was a breast cancer survivor. They'll say, and and I'm well now, and I want to make my voice count. You know, these wow. kinds of things. And um, Christmas around Christmas, I woke up and someone that I had coached had a piece out on paid family leave, and I tell you, that was the best present. Oh, that's Just so to see great. someone come out and do that. It was the best present in the world. Um, that it. and the people I mentor also entered. Honestly, it's it's wonderful to see that because that's a part of legacy too. Well, and, and that's absolutely right. Do you think, Mary, I mean, we've come through just um, some really difficult times, really. I mean, I know myself, I've spent a lot of time, I have friends that have helped me get smarter about how to talk about race and how to talk about uh, these issues, how to understand that the difference about the, uh, you know, the implied white that you mentioned or just earlier, do you, and certainly all the voting rights uh, back and forth that happened in the Congress, do you feel as if uh, the country is, while these are small steps and some of them have been stalled, do you feel like we're getting to a place where we will see advancement and, and awareness and, and a better um, dialogue in our lifetime? Well, you know, I try to be optimistic because that's why you have to try to be. Of course. But, you know, my son is a historian, mm-hmm. and we talk about this, and he says, Mom, you know, it's always the history of this country, progress and then pushback. And we've seen that happen, this mm-hmm. cycle that we go through. Mm-hmm. And... 
yes, when we had a black president, there's so many people who said, oh, now we've cured racism. And I never thought that because you saw these forces that were there all along, and that didn't fit their uh, image of what America was to have this particular family in the White House. So while it was amazing and wonderful and the culmination of so much to many people was just a, a sign to some that America is changing. And in ways, they liked it just the way it was. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and resist that. And having more equality doesn't displace you. Rights aren't a zero-sum game. Um, it just maybe will give you a little more competition there, and that's a healthy thing. Um, and so I do, right now it's tough, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is tough because you do see some of these forces coming out, these groups that are out. We saw January 6th. Oh, that yeah. should have been a shock and a wake-up call. And for some people, and we have a former president hinting he's going to pardon people who defiled the Capitol, mm. uh, who attacked and assaulted uh, police officers and threatened members of Congress uh, in our house, That's your right. house, my house. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it and it's like it wasn't that enough. What will it take? What? And it's as terrifying. a person of color who's the canary in the coal mine, you want to say, if it, if so many people I think feel what, whether the issue is that or a restrictive voting law, they'll think, well, it doesn't affect me. Mm. But you know, they have that lesson from, from the Holocaust. I didn't come, it didn't, I wasn't a Jew, I wasn't a communist, and then they came for me and there was no one left. And I want to say, it will affect you, your rights. Of course it will. Race eventually won't protect you. Money eventually won't protect you. Whether we're talking about rights, the climate, or other things, it's going to come. So I just would, you, you, you just, you see people come out for police reform when George Floyd happens, and but then you know it's going to subside mm-hmm. because people go on to the next thing. And so that's the only thing. I, I yes, I have to think it's going to progress, particularly because I do have a child and we want the world to be better. Right. But I really wish that some of my fellow Americans would give me some more reasons to be optimistic. <laughs> it is a difficult <laughs> right time. I think you're right. No. I could use that, and I think the yeah. rest of us could uh, as well. But the good work, the good work that you do. I mean, you because you don't just talk about your equal time. It's not just about race, and it's not just about. It's about. It's all encompassing. You talk about environmental justice. You talk about so many elements and so many parts of this greater greater good right and all the pieces that we need to consider as we're as we're moving forward the work that you do is going to get us there i do believe i mean it is just and it's and i'm grateful that even though there are people that are unkind and that say maybe speak up and and are trolling for lack of a better way to put it that you continue to do that great work because you have a good support system around you i love that advancement and then the pushback like you said about your son because that i think is the it's the push and the pull that'll get us to a better place and but it's people like you who are doing the work that you do every day that are just um well you know it makes everyone better and i'm so grateful for that well thank you for saying that you know, I appreciate that. Everybody needs some affirmation from time to time. I think we forget about that. And, uh, yeah, and as I said, I'm still learning. I'm going to be learning till they carve me off, I think, you know, and with the podcast. <laughs> Let's hope. We're talking about immigration policy. And mm-hmm. like you say, many things we talk about on the podcast that, you know, the wealth, how wealth is built. I thought that was a fascinating conversation 
uh, with a, a professor from Emory and, um, you know, on, uh, Andre Perry from the Brookings Institute talking about things like that, that yeah, I don't really, I have questions about, as I say. Of and course. It really helps to try to make sense of it and realize how all of these policies are there. Health, health equity, I think the pandemic, uh, COVID helped a lot of, open a lot of people's eyes to the inequities in many systems. In education, you know, there were so many kids who didn't have access to broadband when they, you know, in Native American uh, reservations, I was looking at a report and this young girl had no, she had to go to her grandmother's, it was a generator and it only worked for certain hours in the day, but yet she was trying to get this education. Right. We saw who was the essential worker, who were the, who were the people that could work out of their homes and who were the people that had to get out there. These people who were ignored by many people, not by me, but now all of a sudden they're essential. That's right. um, who gets health insurance? Who has access to this? Mm-hmm. The health system, there are inequities in that. I think it, that did point out to a lot of people, wow, there's a lot of things, that you know, housing. How many people are in multi-family households so they're all together and so they're a little bit more at risk right. uh, than folks who can spread out and have a nice home no <laughs> doubt. Uh, or a big home. I'm sure all know homes are nice. It's your home. Of course. I didn't mean to misspeak there. But, but to have more room to spread out, right. More or, room, yes, and they can isolate and things Or even like hunger. That. I mean, there are so, kids kids that count on school in order to get their meals every day. I mean, that the the awareness of these issues oh, yeah. as we as the pandemic has unfolded has really, for folks like yourself and and for me, certainly I like would like to think that others are are seeing it too. It's been a just a general awareness of some of the inequities that that lie on many many levels of the country and in our in our systems as they exist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so as well. And it's so interesting because my dad had his regular job when, when he had five kids and a big family to take care of, but he used to do um, other jobs all all the time and mainly waiting tables and tending bar and working for caterers like on the weekend and at night. And uh, so that whole thing about essential workers hit me because he would come back and talk about how you're invisible to the people you serve. (laughs) And um, I remember uh, years ago when Mitt Romney got in trouble for that event talking about 47% of the people pay no taxes, Mm -hmm. and they were wondering, who made that tape? Who made that tape? And I said, oh, uh, somebody who was working that party (laughs) did. And I think it ended up being a bartender. I said, oh, I know that because they, those those people, they didn't pay attention to them. They could have had a camera sitting right there. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> because yeah. they're the person that cleaned their table away and brought the drink and made the drink. Yeah. And uh, we need to value that kind of work as well. Uh, so, you know, just, but we need to always value invisible work. You know, I, I do also, uh, among my many things, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, workshops and um, I told the folks that one I did recently, you value that employee that you hire the minority or the woman, and they have their regular jobs, and you also expect them to be on minority task force I and know. represent you in the community <clears throat> and all of these things that's a part of their job. Are you compensating them for that? Are you judging them against colleagues that don't have to do it? Uh, are you putting that in their performance evaluation? Right. right. No matter what level you are on, we have to take note of the contributions of everyone. That's right. 
That's right. And I have a friend who uh, illuminated me early on as the debate was starting to unfold that it ought not to be uh, it ought not to be the African American or the the minority or the woman in the room that has to speak up about these issues. We should all be empowered to say what what are we doing about this? Right? It should always oh, it should yeah. not fall on the person who has that perspective to bring it up. We should all be speaking up in the boardroom and the conference room and whatever, wherever we are to make sure that that is a consideration uh, because it's incumbent on all of us to advance that dialogue as we, as we grow and change and and get better. Mary, I love that you said that a a piece of the inspiration for you for the podcast uh, is your own self-interest in terms of issues, right? Like things that are that are nudging you or, or inspiring you or, or, you know, qu- that you're questioning because that's a big piece of content for everyone. And I love that you encourage that because a lot of times we get lost in the, well, what does everybody else want to hear? The truth is, is that you're probably doing this great work because it is something that you are finding interesting. And so you're going to be naturally more inquisitive and more thoughtful, and you're going to ask the right questions and deliver this good and interesting content that way. Um, because we I hope are, that other people are interested too. I mean, I'm not doing it for myself. I, I, mean, well, I if, have, I, if I have a question <laughs> of what reconciliation means, I'm figuring that there's some other uh, people out there you bet. who don't quite know exactly <laughs> what it means either. So I better get somebody else. Yeah. On. You know how when we when somebody uses a term or says something that we don't understand, we just kind of nod, right, <laughs> and say, "Oh, okay." I I am the person that stops and says, "Well." I don't get it. And I'm figuring that other people don't either. If we're yeah. sitting in so Washington, D.C., or and, uh, if we don't get it, then we can assume that many, many <laughs> other people don't even, that's not part of their regular conversation for sure. No, I, and I meant that as a compliment. I mean, as someone who is producing well, a little, you, this little podcast yeah, of mine, I appreciate that so much. I I'm wondering I've though. Listening. It's really good. Oh. It, it helps me interrogate what people are doing. And you know, everybody has such interesting work. You know, if we just stop, and I really love, no matter what job you do, if you do it well, if you love it, I really appreciate that. You know, Mm -hmm. recently I've had to take a couple of plane rides, and boy, those people that work for that industry are so put upon that I've made it a habit of asking people's names and then writing the company about it. They had a hundred people asking them a hundred things, and they managed to be pleasant and solve some problems. I mean, goodness gracious. Yep. (laughs) I love that. And I think that that's the kind of good we need in the world. I think we should all think to do those kinds of things because what what small gesture like that makes it makes a tremendous difference for that person. They'll get a note, they'll get an acknowledgement. Someone will at least, you know, give them some sort of encouragement from inside of their company. I love that. That's such a good I think that's a good lesson in life is just remember to to share that kindness if you notice that they've um, put it forward because I think that it deserves to be uh, to be recognized. When you are married, when you're thinking about um, preparing for your uh, podcast or preparing for a column or looking for inspiration, is there a, is there a columnist? Is there an author? Is there a thought leader? Is there someone that you turn to uh, that gives you inspiration? Someone that we could share with the audience is someone that you find especially interesting? Well, it's kind of interesting because I, <laughs> I'm i thinking really someone I just have a podcast on this week where <laughs> I have a conversation with a Boston Globe columnist, Renee Graham, who's mm-hmm. an African-American woman, and she's been supportive. We know each other a little bit. Uh, we're not, we, we, we're more acquainted, but we are in the same sphere. And 
Uh, we give support, particularly when we do hear good and ill from folks. And she came on to talk about the, uh, I love the column she did on Black History Month mm. and how to and not to celebrate it, because so much of it has turned into performance, where you have politicians who are working against the interests of black folks have a proclamation. You know, you see it. And uh, so I do love to read her. She she always breaks my brain a little bit, uh, Renee Graham. I love that. At, at the Boston Globe, and she's been on that. And and so she's someone. But I also have to say there are people in my life. I have a book club. Uh, we're all African-American women, summer writers. And we call Zora's Daughters after Zora Hilton, uh, Neil Hurston, the writer. And they've been, they're always wonderful brain trusts. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure people have those kinds of people in their lives. I hope so. And we've, yeah, I hope so. And we can't, we usually meet every month or so, but we haven't been. We did meet in a park mm-hmm. <laughs> so we could be outside yeah. because we needed that. Um, and one of our members actually contributed to a book and, and I contributed to a book. And so we really have great discussions. So uh, that's been a, a wonderful thing. So I think, you know, I think I give you a name that people can look to, but also look to the people in your life. That's great advice. For you and, um, and, and help you. And they, they help me sort things out. Uh, and then I have some family uh, members and close friends. Uh, my niece is a filmmaker and, uh, she started an organization, Women of Color Unite. Uh, her name is Cheryl, uh, L. Bedford. Uh, she's my late sister's daughter and my godchild also. So she's my niece, my godchild, and she kind of was raised as my little sister. I kid her now. And I'm on the board of her organization, and it helps women of color get mentorship and jobs in the industry. And she's a producer herself. Wow, good for her. Um, she produced the documentary Dark Girls about colorism that you may have seen. I think Oprah's channel ran it as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, And they do some great work, and she's just such a smart lady and... Uh, the list uh, that of women, which is up in the thousands in this organization that now is operating in the United States, Canada, and the UK, is called the JTC list, which is the initials Joan Teresa Kerr of my late sister, her late oh, mother. Oh, that's awesome. And so she's carrying on her civic work. And I'm on the board, so and, that's and an active member. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a good support system and a good idea factory. But uh, That's so yeah. great. So as we as we get to the end of our conversation, Mary, we could talk for another hour because I just I've just enjoyed this so much. Uh, but I'd love for you to give me some thought and some recommendation on perhaps someone that might be a good future guest for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, and um, also you said you're going to mention the fact that I work hard, but I do get a few awards, and I am oh really, yes, please I'm kind of thrilled that this year I've um, been. Uh, awarded, I'll be able to visit, pick it up in person, the National Society of Newspaper Columnists, uh, Ernie Pyle Lifetime Achievement Award, about the, really, to get an award with his name on it after his great work in World War II, and, uh, and by my peers and other folks like, that I admire, like Connie Schultz and Leonard Pitts and George Will and others have won it, is a thrill. And so, you know, I've won a few. You have. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, but we got so wrapped up in all the everything no, else. I wanted to make no, sure that I mentioned okay. it. It's, that's, you know, it's just, you know, I, 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 I'm usually very self-conscious about putting that stuff out there, but this is one I'm really... Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. And, uh, I'll have to give a, a speech and my husband's going to be there, so that's neat. Um, but as far as someone I was thinking about, and there's so many people, but I think when you're Washington-centric, that you can forget 
some of the things, uh, you know, when people talk about the, the implications in the whole world. And also, uh, so this week I went to a virtual meeting of the National Association of Black Journalists um, Political Task Force, which I am on, or am a, a member of, and we have great guests and great meetings. And our chair right now is Tia Mitchell. Uh, and she is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the AJC. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people have to realize in Washington, there, there are correspondents from all over right. that come, and they're looking and seeing you know, the, um, what, the, what their state's congressional delegation is doing, mm-hmm. what's going on in the elections, and the impact that decisions that are made in Washington have on residents' throughout the country, in her state, Georgia. but And she's really a great leader of uh, chair. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it would be interesting for you to interview her, to just get that sense of what is it like to be a D.C. reporter for a state. I would love that. Uh, and uh, I thought I think that would be an interesting perspective. Uh, and she also is an African-American woman, of course. That, I think I'm going to recommend that because I think that is a voice that needs to be out there. I agree. And she also graduated from... Uh, uh, HBCU, Florida A&M mm-hmm. University, which I think that's another perspective. You know, we now have a, a vice president you know, who went to Howard, mm-hmm. and now we've also seen tragically that uh, HBCUs are getting, uh, historically black colleges and universities mm-hmm. are getting these bomb threats yeah. from people, and we don't know who's doing it. But there, I think there's a sense, um, there, that's also a threat. Nope. You know, the prescription has always been, no doubt. get your education, be a productive member of society. And these are many, many young people, some of whom is their first in their families to go to college, who are tr- who are doing just that. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I heard, uh, I think a young lady quoted from, it might have been Morgan, which is at HBCU in Baltimore, um, and I know many of the faculty members there, and saying, you know, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to class. I'm not going to let this stop me. And that's very American as well. It but sure it's is. just a shame that some people might think that all these young people of color, and also white, because of course HBCUs are inclusive. Of not course. Inclusive, so they've yeah. always had white students and right. um, white well, faculty as well. But these are just, this is the promise of America. Mm-hmm. So even if it's a prank, which they're taking it seriously, and I'm glad they are, again, I want to say to people, why are you spending your time doing this? Right. There's so many other productive so things. So I think it would yeah. be great to have Tia on, and she can talk to you about her experiences. And I also think she, I'm not sure, but I believe she was quite close during the January 6th uh, coverage. So it would be a fascinating conversation. Well, I'm going to reach out, and I'm going to let her know that you nominated her. And Mary, I hope we can keep this conversation going. I have loved having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, love, I love your questions. It was a wonderful conversation. And I think everybody, we're so busy with our work. We, we need time to reflect a little bit sometimes and sit back and say, okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I do want to leave with a message of make sure people are doing self-care. I think I, I learned that a little too late. You can yeah. go, go, but you know, I, I do value my yoga. I, I do value my evening in the theater with my husband and, uh, phone calls with my son and and all of those I cook because that uses a different energy and I love yeah. it and you know I just think we should count our blessings for what we have and take care of ourselves and that will allow us to do the work that needs to be done no which, whatever it is whatever gives you joy and 
and whatever uh, is, is just out there that you want to do. So long since come to terms with the fact that I, yes, am a workaholic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we also need to yeah. give ourselves a little grace. And I think that that's a great yeah. reminder because we work hard. Oh, we also yeah. deserve some time I'm, to step away. I know. I have a couple of books I'm working on now. I've contributed to quite a few, but now I have a couple that will be mine. And I'm happy about that because I didn't have enough to do, right? <laughs> well, keep me posted because I'd love to have you back on the show to talk more about that too, Mary. Thanks so much. Oh, that would be fun. I would Please love it. Please tell all your listeners, they got to read my column and they got to uh, uh, subscribe to Equal Time with Mary C. Curtis and I'll try to give them, and I actually have a little feature that I say what's keeping me up at night and my listeners will tweet me and, and email me or tell me what's keeping them out, uh, up at night and I'll, I will um, feature it on the show. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's serious. Or, and sometimes it's like my son-in-law needs a job. <laughs> but sometimes it's... <laughs> Those are real-life things. The influence, of, the influence of religion and politics, and then it's, you know... But we have some fun. We have some fun, too, because what's about a little... Can't be serious all the time, right? No. No, no. Well, I'll make sure that we pr- cross-promote your great podcast, Equal Time, and all the column and all the great work that you do, and, uh, and we will definitely stay in touch. Great. Thanks again. You have a fabulous fabulous weekend uh, with you and your family and just enjoy. Thank you. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.